Welcome to our first segment of this afternoon's program. It's Sunday, the 31st of October, 2021. Uh, it is now 1.05 in the studio. I think we were two to three minutes late, folks. Sorry about that. I'm your host, Kieran Murdoch. Um, over the last week, Antiguans and Barbudans have been celebrating 40 years of independence and are doing so today. Uh, November the 1st is the day on which we mark independence. It is a hugely significant milestone and is rightly a time for jubilation and coming together. It is also a time for reflecting and analyzing uh, what the last 40 years have yielded in terms of development, the development of our people through progressive thought, education, training, and social transformation, the development of our economy through domestic investment, the building of intergenerational business, specialization, and the capacity for upward mobility from the lower into the middle class. And of course, it is right that we reflect upon and analyze our political development. What has Antiguan and Barbudan democracy yielded its people after 40 years? Have we created a truly representative relationship between our elected officials and the constituents that they represent? Have we achieved an effective separation of powers by ensuring that we have a parliament capable of keeping the executive branch in check? Have we distanced our bureaucracy, our service commissions, and our police force from political loyalty and sympathies? Have we created a space where journalism and speech can thrive without the threat of political or governmental antagonism and even attack? Do we respect the right to vote and the act of voting as opposed to perverting the act through bribery, inducements, and patronage? Have we created a system of courts whose actions and whose members are entirely above reproach? And lastly, have we held true to the rule of law? What is the rule of law? The rule of law is a principle of governance that all persons, institutions, and entities, public and private, including the state itself, are accountable to laws that are publicly promulgated, equally enforced, and independently adjudicated. In Antigua and Barbuda, in 2021, 40 years after independence has been achieved, can anyone listening to this program honestly say that in this country, all persons, institutions, and entities, public and private, including the state itself and its representatives, are accountable to the laws that are publicly promulgated, equally enforced, and independently adjudicated. This brings us to the topic of today's discussion, which in essence is about accountability and the rule of law when it comes to corruption. Political corruption, misbehavior in public office, and unethical conduct occur in every government on the face of the planet on every continent and amongst all cultures and peoples. It is perhaps the inevitable consequence of the human condition. Corruption has a destructive effect on the social, economic, and political development of a society. But while all governments encounter corruption, the difference between nations is seen in how they choose to combat it, and more importantly, whether their political, governmental, and civic institutions are capable of making those accused of corrupt acts and misbehavior accountable under the law. For several decades now, Antigua and Barbuda has been mired in what could be called a crisis of accountability. Political scandals, corruption scandals, unethical behavior, and poor conduct generally are often covered up, unreported, suppressed through the threat of litigation, intimidation, or victimization, or when such abuse does come to light, it either yields the absolute minimum punitive response or it yields absolutely no response at all. 
It is important to understand the context in which the crisis of accountability that exists in Antigua and Barbuda's political and governmental system plays out. Our parliament is functionally retarded. By that, I mean that an institution of representatives which ought to constrain the activities of the executive branch and oversee its work has been rendered totally ineffective in that task by the mere fact that by design, the majority of those representatives are themselves usually members of the executive branch. The Senate is comprised of appointees who owe their allegiance to those upon whose advice they were appointed and cannot provide any check on the potential for abuse that exists in the government. The country's lone dedicated integrity body is ill-equipped, understaffed, underfunded, and led by a man whose opinion it has been in the past that it is not the role of the Commission to independently investigate corruption, this despite the law making it quite clear that it has the power to do so. The police are often unwilling, ill-equipped, or too compromised to initiate corruption investigations, particularly into sitting administrations. And political parties, finally, perhaps more than any other institution, have failed completely, totally, and manifestly to establish and more so enforce codes of ethical conduct within their organizations. This applies both to the United Progressive Party, the UPP, and the Antigua and Barbuda Labour Party, the ABLP. Now, the most scandal-accused elected official in the history of Antigua and Barbuda is perhaps the current four-term member for St. Peter, Asset Anthony Michael. In Parliament two weeks ago, he criticized the abrasive way in which Prime Minister Gaston Brown has often responded to his critics, especially as it relates to government policies on COVID-19. All I'm saying, Mr. Speaker, there's a way to do things. There's a way to win people. There's a way to convince people you are the leader. You have to do it responsibly and at all times act with maturity. Don't lose your cool. Don't be like Asset Michael sometimes. Be the Prime Minister that the people of the country elected, no matter how they criticize you, no matter if they call you Antichrist, no matter all the words of defamation they may say about you, we're in a pandemic. You have to rise above that. That was the voice of MP Asset Michael. The Prime Minister responded to Michael's jab by rehashing one of the most infamous scandals in Antigua and Barbuda's history, which is the IHI scandal, which centered around the late financier Bruce Rappaport, but in which others, such as Asset Michael, were accused of being involved uh, during the government of Lester Byrd. Of course, uh, he denied involvement many, many times. Uh, the scandal involved the inflation of debt service payments, which the government of Antigua and Barbuda owed to a Japanese company, IHI, for a desalination plant. Uh, ultimately, 14 million U.S. dollars disappeared into a network of offshore entities and accounts. Uh, Rappaport settled the claim against him by agreeing in 2009 to repay 12 million U.S. dollars to the government of Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, and this is the Prime Minister rehashing that in response to Mr. Michael uh, in Parliament two weeks ago. As I said in the crosstalk to a particular person who was like, you know, Satan correcting sin, none of our funds are diverted into private pockets. We don't have no IHI scandal in this administration. We were not taking 200,000 US dollars a month, fleecing the people of Antigua and Barbuda of 200,000 US dollars a month. It never happened. And the only reason why that person and others didn't end up in jail is because the late Bruce Rappaport 
decided to pay back the money. The UPP administration went to restitution. But I have no doubt in my mind that thief, the thief, the money, rip off the people of this country. And that's why I say to that particular individual, he can't serve in the government again, in which I am prime minister. So when they want to take the little beam out of my eyes, tell, I sit, tell him I said to pick out the plank out of this firstly. Okay? So y'all are going to throw no blows at me and think that I'm going to sit down and take it and bang y'all back. I'm sorry. Mr. Speaker, having said that, I think I've answered all of the questions. And you know y'all love y'all, you know, but if y'all lash me, I'm going to lash y'all back. It's just in my character to do that. Mr. Speaker, I recommend this resolution to this Honorable House for approval. Thank you. And now beyond the settlement, nothing else materialized from that scandal in terms of accountability, at least not that I can find. Uh, and Antiguans and Barbudans will remember the long history of, the, of that particular scandal, uh, especially during the, the UPP's 10 years in office and how it would go from the front burner to the back burner on and off and the different approaches that different persons wanted to take on it. But it's interesting that the Prime Minister should mention it in Parliament because according to a 2009 press statement from the then Attorney General, Justin Simon, uh, the corrupt scheme was designed to continue overpaying money into a black hole until 2021, which is this very year. Um, as I said before, Asset Michael has in the past denied wrongdoing in, in, in regards to the IHI scandal. Uh, but he's also been accused of a litany uh, of, of other things uh, and, and been fingered in a number of other scandals, uh, all the time denying, of course, involvement in wrongdoing. Uh, but none of these have ever amounted to anything in terms of prosecution, accountability, or justice. Um, the most recent and the freshest in people's minds, of course, is the Peter Verdi energy scandal, which broke in 2018, uh, in which Michael was reportedly taped demanding bribes and expensive gifts uh, worth millions from British investor Peter Verdi. Of course, he again denied wrongdoing in that scandal. None of these things, as I said, have ever netted any serious process of accountability. Uh, even now, the Labour Party uh, has a stalled tribunal process against Asset Michael, and he still sits in Parliament shoulder to shoulder with his fellow MPs. Uh, but it's not only true of Mr. Michael. Uh, very few people in Antigua and Barbuda who are accused of wrongdoing are ever held accountable. There is always some excuse as to why. Uh, so on this segment, uh, and uh, I do apologize for the lengthy introduction, but uh, on this segment we'll be asking what can citizens do in the face of this crisis of accountability and amidst the systemic failure of virtually all of their government and political institutions to seriously respond to corruption. I shall now introduce the panel. We're happy to have back with us for the third consecutive week, Mr. Akash Maharaj. Uh, it seems like topics to do with integrity and corruption uh, just won't stop. Uh, Mr. Maharaj, of course, as our listeners know, is the ambassador at large for the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, known as GOPAC. Uh, it is an international non-governmental organization made up of parliamentarians from across the world, working together to combat corruption, strengthen good government, and uphold the rule of law. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Maharaj. Happy to have you back. Good afternoon. It's good to be back. Though, of course, I am saddened that there are so many, so many issues of corruption to discuss in Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, we're happy to have with us as well Mr. Um, or Dr. David Hines, rather. Uh, he's a political commentator from Guyana. He's an associate professor of African and African-American studies at the Arizona State University. His focus, of course, is on Caribbean and African diaspora studies, and his research interests include governance and politics in the Caribbean and black political leadership. Good afternoon to you, Dr. David Hines. Good afternoon to you, and it's good to be on, and um, to be on again with um, my co-panelists, some of whom are very much familiar to me, um, given the frequency with which we um, um, appear on this program. And of course, Mr. Astafan, who you haven't introduced yet, is a long-standing friend that go back a few decades when he was a minister. <laughs> 
Uh, we have Mr. Dwyer Rastafan joining us from St. Kitts and Nevis. He is an attorney at law. Uh, he's a retired member of parliament from St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, and he was also cabinet minister. He held portfolios such as tourism, culture, environment, telecommunications, information, labor, justice, commerce, consumer affairs, and national security at various points over his 13 years serving in the executive branch. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Dwyer Rastafan, and how are you doing? Good afternoon, sir. Still here. Haven't gone yet. Still here at the crease. <laughs> and finally, we are joined by Miss Janet A. Calder. Uh, and she let me know if I pronounced her name correctly. She's the executive director of the Jamaica Accountability Meter Portal. Uh, the Jamaica Accountability Meter Portal is a nonpartisan, non-government, and not-for-profit company dedicating itself to improving governance in Jamaica. Uh, good afternoon to you, Miss Calder. How are you doing? All right. Thank you very much for having me, Kieran. It's really good to be with you and my other panelists. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Dr. David Hines, I wonder if I could begin with you. Um, the question that is, is really on my mind, um, it, it, it sort of came out of watching what unfolded in Parliament a, uh, the week before last, uh, the cross jabs and uh, the tendency of our current Prime Minister Gaston Brown to uh, rehash allegations of corruption or bring up new allegations of attempted corruption uh, in regards to Mr. Asset Michael. Of course, these allegations are always allegations which he denies. He consistently denies his allegations. I think it's important to mention that. Um, but every time he raises these allegations, it, 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 it rehashes in the public consciousness uh, the fact that there is no accountability for any of them. Uh, and so you, after a while, begin to see a, a litany of accusations. Uh, and, and if we're speaking in particular regard to the, the, the MP for St. Peter, a litany of accusations, uh, of course, denied and denied and denied over the course of over 20 years uh, that have amounted to pretty much nothing. So I, I, my, my question to you is, uh, do you think, would you agree in terms of uh, me terming it as a, as a crisis of accountability in Antigua and Barbuda? Yes, I, I completely agree that it's a crisis. I think I would go a little bit further and say um, that when, when you listen to the, to the conversation or the cross-talk between the Prime Minister and Mr. Michael, there's an assumption there of a culture of corruption, that this culture of corruption has now become normative. So you listen to these two elected officials talking about corruption as if there are no consequences for this corruption, that it's part of um, political campaigning, it's part of governance. So when we talk about it, there is not going to be any legal consequences, any criminal consequences, and perhaps uh, there is not going to be any political consequences. We can talk about it. So that conversation assumes, as I say, that uh, political corruption has become normative in Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, and Mr. Dwyer Rastafan, um, I, I mean, I did send a rather extensive brief of uh, uh, listing a whole lot of things. And I, and I know you'll be familiar with a lot of them. But just looking at all of that, sort of just processing, um, especially all the new allegations, because I find it really interesting that our prime minister has so many new allegations to make that no one else has ever heard about, uh, that he has 
simply to speak about at will. You know, the, the, the minute he gets into another spat with Mr. Michael, he has five more new allegations of corruption, which no one else knew about, that uh, he is now bringing to the fore, or attempted corruption, as he says, because, you know, he usually jumps in at the last minute to put a stop to it. So what do you think, uh, Mr. Astefan? Firstly, let me, by way of preface, say that I have no horse in this race. Then I will say, in response to what you said, Mr. Murdoch, a lot of allegations um, indicative of the lack of accountability. Now, I don't know if you mean that, are you ref I, I don't know if you're referring to the person about whom the allegations are being made, or you're referring to the person or persons who are making the allegations, because he who alleges must prove generally in the law. Now, something that is of concern to me is the question, if Mr. Michael is guilty of all of these things or some of these things um, which he's alleged to have done, some going back almost 30 years, where were the authorities then and since? How did his governmental colleagues tolerate him? Why did they tolerate him? Why did process not begin to get to the bottom of these matters? I don't think you can blame the person against whom the allegations are made. And typically in situations like this, because it is clear that there's a personal thing between these two gentlemen. And those of us who know the history will know that Mr. Michael was very instrumental in Mr. Gaston Brown's accession to the leadership of the Labour Party and the Prime Ministership of Antigua and Barbuda. There is something deep and toxic festering between the two of them. And to me, it is unfortunate that the Prime Minister and in Parliament and perhaps on its radio or wherever station is bringing up things not just of the present and the past and all of a sudden Mr. Michael is a pariah. This is somebody who has been close to the leadership of the Labour Party for nearly all of his life, if not all of his life, because I understand that his family were very close to the Labour Party going back to his grandfather was also named Asad Michael. So, and when he says, the Prime Minister, about beaming eye and planking eye and so forth, let, let, me, let, me, let me put it in a nutshell for you, Mr. Murder, from my perspective. If anybody in that organization, and let me expand that to the other party too, because they were in government, and they have to account as well. But if anybody in any one of those organizations is guilty of any wrongdoing, then he or she is not the only one. And that is what makes it systemic. And that is why it will never get anywhere under the present dispensation. A complete makeover is needed. And just to bring you comfort if this does, Antigua and Barbuda is not the only place with that problem. Let me, um... This is a regional problem, and maybe my next turn to answer, 
I could give you some insights and from my perspective as to some of the causes of this. Let me bring in Mr. Akash Maharaj. Uh, Mr. Maharaj, would you uh, agree with uh, Mr. Astefan when he says that a complete makeover is necessary, particularly as we speak about uh, our two political parties in Antigua and Barbuda? Uh, we recall, of course, that the United Progressive Party um, entered office uh, in 2004. A major part of its platform was anti-corruption. And one of its uh, enduring criticisms having left office, or one of the enduring criticisms having left office of the United Progressive Party, is that it, 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 it failed in terms of reforming the system uh, to, to keep corruption at bay, to fight corruption, and to increase integrity in public life. It passed a trilogy of legislation, which they tend to harp on about excessively on and on and on and on and on, but they didn't operationalize it very much, um, or, or really much at all. I mean, what good is law if you don't really have agents capable of enforcing it? Uh, but Mr. Maharaj, yeah, sorry, sorry to say all of that. Um, would you agree with Mr. Astefan that it, it requires a complete system makeover? I would. I mean, clearly, this has demonstrated the extent to which the rot has permeated every, almost every part of the state apparatus. I think it's important to remember that the, the accusations made by Prime Minister Gaston Brown are either true or false. If they are false, then Mr. Brown is knowingly and recklessly deceiving the country and deceiving Parliament. But if they are true, the accusations he has made about Asset Michael the most important thing to take away from this is not merely that it means Mr. Michael was engaged in gargantuan levels of corruption. It also means that Gaston Brown was plainly aware that he was doing this and did little to nothing to curb his excesses. And that indeed, Mr. Brown has only found his tongue to, to merely to criticize, not even to prosecute, just to criticize the corruption of his, of his party colleague because the two of them are clearly locked in some sort of interpersonal political conflict. There are, I think, three kinds of reforms that Antigua and Barbuda needs to undergo if it is to throw off the shackles of corruption, none of which are easy. One is constitutional. Clearly, there is no meaningful parliamentary oversight of the executive. There are only 17 members of the House of Representatives, and typically as many as 13 or 14 of them Will be members of cabinet. The basic idea behind parliamentary government, parliamentary governance, is that parliament oversees the cabinet. That only works if a majority of the MPs are not members of cabinet. When you have a system where a majority of, of MPs are in cabinet, what this amounts to are cabinet ministers overseeing themselves. And as the saga has rep, has has demonstrated, that just means that they can cover up their own corruption. The second is political. That is to say, in, in most part, in most countries, if a government becomes so corrupt that they test that it tests the patience of the people, they're voted out and replaced by another political party. But it should be clear to everyone that corruption has become woven into the warp and the weft of Antiguan politics. It's not enough just to change parties. There's also an unwillingness in amongst institutions such as the anti-corruption body amongst prosecutors to use even existing laws against political actors who, who, who not only might be involved in corruption, but who are to all intents and purposes testifying against one another in parliament as to corruption that they say they know about, yet there are no consequences. But I think the biggest and most important change is also the most difficult to achieve, and that is social change. Antigua and Barbuda is a democracy. 
and notwithstanding the monumental levels of corruption that have been revealed by the prime minister himself involving the prime minister and members of his own cabinet there's no escaping the simple fact that the people of Antigua and Barbuda have rewarded those political actors by by re-electing this government and re-electing Asset Michael as a member of parliament that suggests to me that there has become that Antigua and Barbuda have fallen under the talons of a social culture that accepts corruption as being part of the normal normal state of affairs where still perhaps even the the possibility that many Antiguans and Barbudans hope to benefit from corruption they don't they may not want they may not look to the day where, where corruption ends but instead look to the day when their patron is the one with his nose in the trough so that perhaps as he sloshes about in it some of those benefits those illicit benefits might splatter on them the country i think needs to be seized culturally of the reality that when politicians steal from the state they're stealing from you Antiguan Barbuda, as I've said many times on this program, is a phenomenally rich country. It is the 15th, it is um, the 44th by GDP, uh, per capita GDP, wealthiest country in the world. Yet the vast majority of its population is far from wealthy. It is also the 15th most unequal society in the world. And that is because all that wealth, and there is enormous wealth in the country, is being pillaged by a small number of people almost all of them being either members of the political class or with influence in the political class. And as a country, its citizens have to decide whether they find this acceptable. If you think that's acceptable, then that is your choice. But if you want to be if you if you want to be free of corruption, it's up to you to decide as as a people that you will not tolerate it. Uh, let me bring in Mrs. Uh, Janet Calder. Just to ask you, Ms. Calder, uh, having taken in all of this information about um, the nature of accountability and corruption in Antigua and Barbuda, I know you're based in Jamaica. I want to ask you, how do we compare in terms of what is the situation in Jamaica uh, and, and how uh, corruption and accountability manifests there? Yes, thank you. It was good positioning me at this point, Kieran, because the detail of the situation between the two parliamentarians is relatively new to me. But my thoughts on the matter were, you know, regardless of minister, ministry, the details, much of this case mimics what is happening in Jamaica, around the Caribbean and around the world. So beyond the details, there is an issue of very low accountability in Jamaica. I must say that where I am encouraged in comparison, taking a look at the Antiguan situation before the program started, Jamaica has a very strong legislative framework, a very strong institutional framework, and with quite a bit of resources to back the institutions and the legislation that empower them to hold public officials to account. So that is one of the differences I'm I'm, I'm picking up, that there is definitely a resource constraint on one hand, but when I listen to Akash speak, It is. It seems to be a deficiency by choice, not that there are not resources should there be political will to back it. Um, citizen engagement might also be another area of distinction between the two islands because, you know, a JAMP, the Jamaica Accountability Meter Portal, National Integrity Action, which is a good 10 years older than we are, are very active citizen organizations that's building citizens' awareness and also um, agitating for change. If you do not have that happening in Antigua and Barbuda, 
then you're not going to see much changing in terms of accountability. Your political, your legislative framework is not bad. You have the key, which is a Freedom of Information Act, which is basically the, the basis on which JAMP does its work. Without that government giving us that tool, there's very little that we could do. So I was very encouraged to see that um, Antigua and Barbuda has that. You have an Integrity in Public Life Act. You have a Corruption Prevention Act. And those are good grounds to stand on. But as a politician said to me in 2013, when I decided to engage in advocacy, I'm sure it's true for Jamaica. I'm sure it's true for Antigua. If, well, he said to me, we get away with no more than the citizens of Jamaica allow us to. And I will never forget that because that is what has continued to encourage me. We point a lot at our political leaders, but I don't know if that's a saying in Antigua and Barbuda, but growing up here in Jamaica, our parents and our teachers would often say, when you point at someone, you have three fingers pointing back. So my whole attitude about pointing to politicians is that there are three fingers pointing back at the citizen asking us, what are we doing? We are the employers. Eh? And yes, we call it an election every four or five years, but it's really a job recruitment process. We hire these public officials as political leaders to do our job. And so the same way in the private sector, if you find that your employees are not delivering we, we have to find a way to hold them to account. So it comes back to citizen and it comes back to social change, tying right back into what Akash said a while ago. What is the limit to which Antigas and Barbudans are prepared to put up with this? And if we don't communicate to our political leaders that there will be a political price, then we won't see change. Well, let me bring back in Dr. David Hines. Dr. Hines, I want to ask you, especially in the context of, of studying Caribbean politics, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll use something that Mr. Maharaj said when he, when he spoke about the fact that um, uh, you do have supporters, you do have constituents of politicians who are aware that their, their, their politicians have been accused uh, of various things. Um, but of course, because of the established systems of patronage which dominate the way in which the relationship between a constituent and an MP plays out, uh, that constituent may be able to get things from their MP, from their minister, whether those things are in their, their area, whether those things are related to them personally, whether it's uh, simply assistance or favor. Um, and so, especially in the context of a developing society with a lot of, of impoverished people, uh, that tends to reduce their 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 willingness to say, well, no, I don't want you in office, in office because of you know all the allegations against you. Uh, they in fact say, yes, I do want you in office because you seem to have the means to continue to patronize. Um, how do we overcome that? I think that's I think that uh, is at the heart of the matter. Um, our Caribbean, our English-speaking Caribbean. Um, <laughs> Central to our politics has been the politics of patronage, or what in academic circles they call clientelism. And um, uh, that, that, that clientelism, of course, um, silences the supporters of the respective parties when it comes to holding them accountable. They're prepared to hold the other party accountable, but not their party. So to use your word, there's a crisis there of accountability, the party is not accountable to its own supporters. And because of the winner-take-all system, it's not accountable to um, the supporters of the opposition. So clientelism is at the center um, of, 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 of the problem. And this, that, that comes down to the zero-sum politics. 
um, as I said just now, we're um, supporters of one party and not prepared to hold their party accountable. And so people turn the blind eye. Then you have the question of fear of retaliation. So the public servants who are really supposed to run the government machinery and to have that eye on corruption, they do not because they fear they're going to lose their job. They're going to, there's going to be retaliation. And then when the new party comes in, they will talk the talk about going after corruption. But what they will do is that they will go after individuals in the previous government in order to score points so that they are not concerned about um, getting rid of corruption, or really concerned about scoring political points and getting crossover votes from the other parties. So they're going to... Um, perhaps uh, charge a person here, um, and so on and so forth. But they're not going to go. They have never gone to the heart of corruption. And so, therefore, even when the new government comes in, you um, don't get the, the meat of the matter. And a second important factor here is ideological. And you see, our islands, our countries in the Caribbean, dependent on foreign capital. Foreign capital, as we know, has now um, emerged with rogue capital. So when you, have, when you depend on that, foreign rogue capital comes in, embedded in that is bribery and kickbacks and so forth. And so the, the, the very dependence on foreign capital, in a sense, in every sense, I would say encourages local corruption. But when you take into consideration the clientelism and zero-sum politics on the one hand, and the baggage that international capital brings as far as corruption, you have that crisis of corruption that you are talking about, which, um, as I listen to my 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 um, co-panelists here, has gone beyond crisis, already systemic problem because if your institutions are corrupt and when you bring institutions together they become the system you then have systemic corruption that is uh, uh, embedded there but it's embedded in people's consciousness people's political consciousness it's, it comes entangled with morality is corruption immoral if it's I, I get some kickback from corruption. I put food in my table. Is it immoral? No, it's not immoral. It becomes moral. And so really, you have this tremendous crisis in the society that um, institutions themselves have failed to deal with. And I hear us talk about institutions there, but I want to stress that in 2021, institutions of the English-speaking Caribbean, after 60-odd years of independence, failed to deal with the question of corruption. You then therefore have to um, renew those institutions. And at the same time, as Akasha said, we have to renew our sense of what is wrong and what is right in the society, what is politically wrong and what is politically um, correct. So this is a big undertaking that if we talk about it at the level of institutions, I think we're missing um, the big problem. And I want to... Um, with my colleagues and say that it's not in Antigua and Barbuda alone, it's throughout the region. I come from a country called Guyana, 
um, that it has, it has been there. And now with the big oil coming to Guyana, we have already seen signs of that problem getting into the skies. Uh, and Mr. Dwyer, Dr. Hines, I would let you know that um, we heard what you were saying, but the connection was a, a little bit shaky, so the quality wasn't as best as it could be. I want to see if we could give you a call on the phone, perhaps. Um, are you near to your cell phone? Um, yes. We, we give you a call on the phone just for the next round to make sure we can hear you clearly, um, and we'll keep you muted on Zoom. Uh, Mr. Astefan, you had wanted to, to, to speak on the issue of this being a, a problem throughout the region. Well, beyond the region, but if, if I may respond quickly to something that Ms. Calder said, that we, the people, are the employers. The problem with that is, for one reason or other, we don't see ourselves as the employers. And if that perception were reversed, mm -hmm. then I think the dynamic would be completely different. Yeah. What we see ourselves, what we have here, from my perspective, is a culture of dependency on politicians. The politician depends on you for the vote, and you depend on him or her for the five years between one vote and the next, either to get a job or to get a, 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 a scholarship for your child or to get a piece of land or money to go to the dentist, or whatever the case may be. The politician capitalizes on that. If you superimpose on that, the, the reality, which it is, because Mr. Maharaj refers to Antigua as the 44th, 44th richest country on the planet, but they still have not managed, and they're not alone, to provide their people with a steady and sustainable supply of energy and water. Two core needs in human development, whether economic or social. So clearly, there is a big gap between the statistic that shows a country of a certain level of wealth and the reality that exists on the ground. And that is because the relationship has been distorted. So we act as like we are mendicants going to the politicians and we keep asking them for favors and they keep capitalizing on it. What we need, when I said a wholesale change, um, Mr. Maharaj did refer to constitutional reform and political reform. I don't quite recall the third reform, which, which he, social he, he change. said. Social change, okay, fine. But all of those things are required and it starts in the home. It starts in the home. Our school system, I don't know about Antigua, or Jamaica, but they don't teach civics in the schools anymore. The spiritual upbringing of our children. We have, we have transformed, transitioned from a, a place where we used to consider morality. We walk through the path of immorality, and now we live in the world of amorality. There are no values. Politics and elections are transactional, not transformative. We have been inundated with, with, with messaging and the culture coming from outside of instant gratification, greed, selfishness, superficiality, and everything, and I'm just generalizing, not absolutely, but everything is governed by that type of mindset, including the most critical process, which is electing a government to serve and guide 
the country. And this is what I meant. We, 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 this, this, in our school system, you, you need to get teachers. Look, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You have places like Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Finland and so forth about the education system. And I think we may have spoken about it before. Let we me, um, need... Uh, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry. No, I just I just wanted to I, I just to because we don't have we only have 15 minutes left. I go ahead. To, go ahead. It's okay. To bring in Mr. Maharaj. Mr. Maharaj, I want to ask you. Um, it's something that's well known throughout Antigua. It's something that, uh, and I'll go back to. We we're speaking generally. I'll go back to the specific case of of uh, Mr. Michael. Um, uh, also something that the Prime Minister has spoken about. Um, but the fact that Mr. Michael is a a very major philanthropist. Uh, many people will attest to the fact that he has contributed money uh, to various charitable causes uh, and uh, as well. Uh, He's well known as a major Labour Party donor, uh, as well as, be, of course, being one of the, the, the ministers and MPs in the Labour Party for the longest while. Uh, but that capacity to, th to put money into people's pockets and to put money into the party's pocket, uh, many would argue, is primarily what has enjoined him to the party for, for so many years and to the public heart for so many years, uh, despite all the various accusations which he has denied. I'm sure that's the case, and I'm sure that in the immediate term, it wins over the loyalty of people who who feel that they can see what their patron, their political patron, is doing for them, and have little confidence that the political structure will do anything better for them. That is why I think that one of the keys to breaking the psychology of dependency, the idea of politicians as our our masters and our patrons, is to realize that he is bribing his constituents with their own money. If you you don't have to think about it very long to ask yourself, but where Mr. does that Maharaj, money? Yes, I think oh. you should use consider using the word alleged. Allegedly, alleged. thank you. You say he's bribing his constituents. Thank you. Uh, that I, thank I, you. That that that's a that, yeah, that's, that's a good admonition. Um, yes. I will say generally across the world, this is a typical tactic that is that is used by politicians. They pick our pockets and then they throw some crumbs back at us and tell us that we should be grateful for those crumbs. People who generate their wealth through political corruption aren't generating, are, or they, they aren't generating new wealth. They are simply recycling the wealth within the society. They're hoarding a great deal of that wealth for themselves and they are bribing us by throwing us a small amount of our own money back. To give you an analogy, if I were to break into your house and steal all of your, all of your furniture, but then come back later on and give you a chair, I don't think you feel grateful to me. You would recognize that I'm merely giving you back what was already your property, and I have made off with most of your property. The same thing happens in, under situations of, of political corruption. Populations are bribed with their, with their own assets. And until people realize that, until they realize that they should not be grateful for the crumbs that they are receiving, they should be conscious of the fact that the loaves are being stolen by their, by their political masters. That fiction will will carry on, and I, su I suppose ultimately, in any democracy, we get the government that we deserve. It's up to the people of Antigua and Barbuda to, to decide whether they des deserve better than to be ruled by a political class who, in public, accuse one another from their own knowledge of being engaged in monumental acts of corruption. You mentioned at the opening of this program that this is the 40th anniversary of Antiguan Barbuda's independence. Like so many countries that have emerged from the British and French empires, Antiguan Barbuda is definitely independent.
but it is not free. To too great an extent, the people, the, the, a country that was once colonized by Europeans who exploited it, its population to grow tobacco and sugar, is now effectively internally colonized by, colonized by a political class that is no less keen to exploit the population um, for their own benefit. It's not enough to be independent. We have to be free. Mm. And the people of Antigua and Barbuda have the means to make themselves free. They have to show the same determination in throwing off the chains of corruption that they showed in throwing off the, the chains of formal colonization. Um, and I will just say, I will just say just a follow up there. Um, of course, Mr. Michael um, uh, has maintained that his wealth is legitimate. I will just put that out there. He maintains his wealth is legitimate. Miss um, Calder, I want to ask you, what is your reaction to the stance of our prime minister in terms of uh, his public utterances, his accusations? Because uh, as I mentioned at the start of this program, uh, he, he for a little while now in Parliament during this spat with Mr. Michael, he will make an allegation against Mr. Michael saying the MP attempted to do X and I put a stop to it. Um, but in so doing reveals that he would have maintained him as a, a member of his government despite those those actions. Uh, I, I'm just curious for your feedback as to our Prime Minister and, 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 and how his actions, what, what, what do his actions speak in terms of this entire affair? Well, well, if you assess the accountability frame, when you first assess the accountability framework of Jamaica or Antigua and Barbuda, I'm pretty sure that the capacity of any prime minister to hold any public official to account is probably limited just to his cabinet. Yeah, So they served based on his nomination and appointment, and therefore he's fully within his legal um, constitutional rights to excuse the MP from serving. Um, this is again a matter of political will. We saw for the first time in I think since 2006 in Jamaica last year when our Prime Minister did that uh, with one who was quite dear to him, someone he grew up with, went to school with, is actually a friend of his. But that really only happened as a result of citizens deciding not to let up and we kept at it over quite a long period until, interestingly enough, it is the MP in the cabinet who decided that he would resign. And then the next time, the following year, that we had another situation with the Minister of Education, we found that when an allegation was merely mounted, the Prime Minister, post haste, within 48 hours, asked the Minister of Education to resign. Now, notice the difference. The previous year, it took about maybe 18 weeks of nothing but constant pressure, articles in the paper, calling into the talk shows, you name it, social media, utilizing a technology that our, 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 our grandfather didn't have when, as Akash said, they threw off the shackles of um, slavery or, or the colonial um, governance. And here we have it in Jamaica, due to public pressure, the prime minister bowing within 48 hours, 12 months later, when a similar scenario pops up. I think that is exactly what we're trying to say here. Until the citizens of the Caribbean, regardless of who is in our parliaments, recognize, or rather maybe until the media and civil society can help the citizens to make direct connections between the kinds of abuse that's taking place um, regarding the public purse, until we can make a direct connection to how it impacts the quality of our lives, then I don't know that citizens are going to get up and demand change. So I think it is for civil society. Um, <laughs> Mr. Astafan was correct. In the absence of civics, 
it's now for us to use our voice to make the dots, connect the dots between the quality of our lives and the choices our political leaders are making, apply the pressure. And I guarantee we all know the, the quotation that says, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. That remains true today. It's not going to be any kind of secret weapon outside of our engagement. Uh, Dr. David Hines, um, you, you're still with us on Zoom. I hope the connection is is good and strong. Uh, we weren't able to hear you on the phone, but that, that doesn't matter. We were hearing you. We were hearing you on Zoom. I want to ask you just to pick up on what Ms. Calder has said: um, media and civil society in the Caribbean. Uh, now. If we look at the case of Antigua and Barbuda, of course, in any society, these are very strong things in terms of holding public officials to account and putting pressure uh, on officials to do what is right. Uh, but in Antigua and Barbuda, for as an example, we have a, a situation in Antigua and Barbuda where uh, political actors have for years attempted to maintain pretty large sway of control over the media in terms of state media, in terms of having their own their own media houses. Uh, and we don't have a, a, a very wide array of, of, of independent private media. Uh, so that is a, is a drawback. And then, of course, civil society and resources. Uh, I, I noted what Ms. Calder spoke about in terms of resources and civil society uh, in Jamaica. Of course, they have the uh, accountability meter. Uh, and of course, the um, a national integrity action, uh, private organizations that work to, to, to hold the government to account. We don't have such organizations in Antigua and Barbuda, and I'm sure there are other Caribbean islands that are similar in our tiny society. How, how then should we proceed with media that is dominated politically and uh, inactive civil society? Well, the, the media can, can, can expose corruption, but in terms of, of, of dealing a decisive blow to corruption, it has to be done through advocacy and activism. And I think civil society, as my colleagues have said, um, has an important role to play. But civil society itself has to be more aggressive um, in dealing with this matter. Now, once it's around election time, you're not going to get any conversation about election, about corruption, because people are thinking about voting for one party or the other. And like I said, um, one, the supporters of one party will support anti-corruption and anti-corruption drive against the opposite party, not, uh, not, not against their party. So um, um, you, you, you are not going to get any juice there. I think it is in between elections that you have to raise these issues and move very aggressively um, with it. Now, our institutions have failed um, uh, us as far as corruption is concerned. Um, you, you know, people are fearful. People in the in the in the um, public service, they're fearful of all holding officials accountable. They could lose their jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, uh, uh, this thing has to be politicized in between election, and we have to be aggressive about it. Um, there has also, the, in the short term, there has to be some deterrence if we are going to deal with corruption. Um, and in this um, instance, the police and the courts are very important. I think we have to target those institutions. We have to target the police and give the police the confidence that they can go after corruption and risk, um, you know, losing their jobs and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and charging people whenever there are allegations of corruption. And our judiciary, our judiciary also has to be very aggressive in this instance. So you have to have deterrence 
and then you have to have a renewal of the institutions. And you're only going to renew the institutions if you renew people who are going to man those institutions. So the, le the, the question of whether corruption is moral or immoral comes into play. The churches and other such organizations have to play important roles. So I am arguing that this thing is not a single straightforward um, problem. It's multifaceted. And the entire society has to be engaged. Bio mentioned education. And, and, and that is extremely important. Is our education an education for us to get jobs? Or is it an education to equip us as human beings to serve our society? And if the latter is correct, it means, therefore, that the very education content, we talk often talk about the education system, the actual education content has to change. It has to undergo change. So that and one doesn't have to say, I'm teaching a course on corruption. If you're teaching a course on literature, the book that you use is very important in terms of orienting the students about values that important, that important. So, 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 I would say at the level of our education, at the level of popular advocacy, and, 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 and certainly at the level of those two institutions, the police and the court. I think deterrence has to be like tomorrow. Uh, Mr. Asafan, uh, we are drawing down to the end of this segment. We have just about two to three minutes left. Uh, I want to give uh, the other three panelists a chance to give their final word. Uh, what would your final word be uh, in terms of tackling uh, systemic corruption in all our islands? Well, everything that everybody has said here, I think, is, is relevant to the solution. We understand the problem. But I would appeal to individuals at this moment, given my departure, um, when you support corruption, and you do so by being taken care of by somebody, and let me tell you this, um, let me make some more enemies here. A lot of big business is just as culpable as our public sector decision makers, eh? Because they feed a lot of money into the corrupt system to sustain the status quo, which keeps the small man down. The small man has to understand that this is a dance that's going on between the big businessman to a large extent and the decision maker in the public sector. And he goes to the dance maybe to sweep the floor after the dance, but he's not a dancer. What I'm appealing to our ordinary, and I don't like that word, but our ordinary folks is to understand that in supporting or being indifferent to corruption is tantamount to celebrating your own degradation. And we can't have that, and you must not allow that. You need to stand up and change the system. Otherwise, your grandchildren would be very upset with you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Maharaj, uh, briefly your final word, what do you want to leave us with? My final word would be to say to the people of Antigua and Barbuda um, that if you should bear in mind that when you are ruled by a corrupt political class and when they are stealing from your society, they're not just stealing from your neighbor, they're stealing from you. There are no circumstances where you as an ordinary person would be better off by being ruled by people who who are pillaging you and your society. And while a free and independent 
media is a necessary condition to expose corruption, it is not sufficient to make you care about corruption. That is up to you. In the past, we had institutions like the church that molded public ethics and public values. I think, I suspect that in Antigua and Barbuda, like in most Western societies, the impact of the church has has diminished over time. That means that there's a role for civic society, not just the formal education system, but the informal education system. That is the way in which we interact with one another to take up that role of molding public values in the image of uh, a society that would make us proud rather than rather than ashamed. Um, this is the 40th anniversary of Antigua and Barbuda's independence. A previous generation of people, of activists, made the country free, made the country independent. It's up to this generation of Antiguans and Barbudans to make the country free. And if you don't do so, history will judge you harshly. It will judge you like the people who collaborated with the slave drivers prior to independence, who collaborated with people who, while while literally enslaving the population, told them to their face that slavery was good for them. Slavery is not good for anyone, and corruption is not good for anyone other than the corrupt. Uh, And Ms. Calder, your final word for this segment, what would you leave us with? Um, I would just leave the listeners with uh, the two quotations that inspired me to get involved and to agitate and to become an activist. It's one from Frederick Douglass that said, the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And one of my own favorites is, cowardice like courage is contagious. Yeah, they both are equally contagious. So. By what we say and do, we can spread darkness just as readily as we spread light. Change is really waiting on the citizens of Antigua and Barbuda more than it is waiting on political leaders to get up and do something. I believe it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, With that, we're going to have to end this segment here. I want to say thank you to all of our guests. Uh, We were joined, of course, by uh, Mr. Akash Maharaj. He's the chief executive. I'm sorry, he's ambassador at large, sorry, for the uh, Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, known as GOPAC. Uh, Dr. David Hines joined us as well, political commentator from Guyana, associate professor of African and African-American studies at the Arizona State University. Uh, Mr. Dwyer Astefan joined us. He's an attorney, a retired MP from St. Kitts and Nevis, also served 13 years as as a member of the cabinet. Uh, and, of course, Ms. Janet Calder, Executive Director of the Jamaica Accountability Meter Portal, which is a, a nonpartisan, non-government company dedicated to good governance and improved governance in Jamaica. Thanks to all four of you for joining us this afternoon. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you. Thank you.